So here's the scene. Lot leaves Zor. He asked to go to this little city out of Sodom. Didn't want to go to the caves. Went to Zor. Wasn't that great? So he's like, I guess the caves are a little bit better. So it was just now Lot and his daughters living in a cave. The daughters are concerned. Verse 30, 31 through 33. There's not men here. But what Zor and other places uh, uh, lacked, didn't lack apparently was wine because what the cave lacked was men. But apparently in the dire circumstances that Lot and his daughters were in, they didn't lack wine. Okay, the cave, the cave, I mean, they brought the bare essentials, right? And so apparently it was a cave full of wine, um, and they had this in abundance, and they drank to their heart's delight. The cave lacked in men, it didn't lack in drink. And so the idea is that they brought, is let them get them drunk, and I don't want to repeat it again because I want to be conscientious of the room. And so they get them drunk, very drunk, that he doesn't remember what's going on. And if you've been drunk, I've not been that drunk before, but some of you know what this is like. You're like, been there, don't really want to talk about it. But if you get me talking about it, I've got stories. Um, or I've got an imagination of what could have happened when I was lights out drunk um, sort of thing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Lot. Okay, this is what the New Testament calls righteous Lot in Second, second Peter. That's the scandal of the righteousness of God, that it doesn't depend on our righteousness by God's grace. Aren't you thankful for that? So, first daughter, round two, same thing again, Lot, daughter number two. Both daughters pregnant. And here we bump up to this question again. These two, two questions we're going to keep going to again and again. Where is Jesus in this? Could anything good come out of this? Remember Kurt. At least something redemptive came from this. What redemptive came from this? He asked this question to me. Who's the most famous Moabite in the Bible? I'll ask you. Who's the most famous Moabite in the Bible? Anybody thinking about it? Ruth. You know Ruth, right? Ruth and Boaz story, love story for the ages. Noah and Ali had nothing on Ruth and Boaz. <laughs> Renee got it. Joby got it. The notebook. <clears throat> Hidden in plain sight, verse 37 and 38, from the first daughter who's born, Moab. And then here come the Moabites. So I want to turn to Ruth chapter 1. And we're again kind of going on a little bit of a pilgrimage through the Bible. We're going to look at Ruth, and then we're going to go to Matthew. If the whole scene with Lot and his daughters didn't happen, we didn't have this boy named Moab. And therefore, we didn't get this line of people from him called the Moabites. We're going to play the what-if game here for a little bit. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now this is interesting. We see that there is, in fact, now a land of Moab. The generations had begun to build and grow. So there, Moab had children who had children, and all of a sudden we have a nation called the Moabites with a land. And there is now a famine Amongst the people of Israel, the people, people of God during the days of the judges. 
And it is fascinating to me that it's a famine that drives, that drives a few people, Elimelech, Naomi, and the children out of the land of God's people and into the land of Moab. You see God's meticulous and miraculous hand at work. I mean, generation after generation after generation removed from the whole Lot and his daughters incident, there is now a land and God is driving some of his people through by way of famine. And they could have easily been saying, Jesus, well, they were, God, where are you in this? What good could come from this famine, God? We're pleading, we're, we're crying, we're praying, and nothing's good. And in fact, people are now leaving this land and going to these wicked nations around us for, as refugees. And Elimelech and Naomi are forced out by way of famine. Is it a purposeless famine? Is it simply the work of the enemy? Is God not hearing their prayers? Or is something going on? Is God at work? Yes, God is at work. A man from Bethlehem leaves and goes to the country of Moab. Again, remember, where did the Moabites come from? Well, this scandalous, incestuous scene from Genesis chapter 19. Verse 2 through 5, look with me. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were of the Epaphrodites, Ephraimites, whatever that is, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Orpah and Ruth. Okay, so the name of their wives. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left, the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. And her husband, not husbands, plural, and her husband. A sad scene for Naomi, right? Husband dies. Well, at least she's got her children. She's not living in her native land. And then everybody begins to drop like flies around her. And her son's now gone. Her son's married these two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Everybody else dies. So the scene, the saga, begins to unfold. Lot... And his, old, and his oldest daughter started the Moabites, which led to Ruth. And at the perfect time, God brings a famine to his people, forcing Elimelech and Naomi into the land of Moab, a people that would not exist apart from our passage today. The story begins to unfold even further. Verse 14 through 18, read with me. Look with me. You don't have to read. I'll read it. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave with you or to return from following you, to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Isn't this fascinating? Ruth says to her, I will not leave. Orpah may go, but I'm staying with you, Naomi. What kind of woman is Ruth? She had the opportunity to stay with her people. Everything that was normal to her. Everything she grew up in. The culture that she grew up around. Familiar. She knew the dusty streets. She knew the lay of the land. She played hide and seek around and behind that tree and that bush. And here is her mother-in-law. I mean, what woman wants to live with her mother-in-law, for goodness sake? And she has this loyalty to Naomi that is so astounding. And she's saying, I'll abandon, I'll leave everything. I'm going with you and your people will be my people. Why? What's going on? Couldn't she equally have been like me in this scene? And even they, way much more, praying like, this seems senseless and chaotic. There's no point to this. God, if you exist, everyone around me is dead. I have nothing except my mother-in-law. Couldn't she have been asking the same? Yes, of course. But she said, I'm going to go with you. And your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm not, don't, don't. I'm going to go with you. Don't leave me here. And they lived happily ever, ever, ever after. Behold the power of God. Isn't that a great story? Now they're living with God's people again. And now there's been a convert. Now Ruth is with the people of God. Story end, ends. Or, or, there's a lot more. And that's the case. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to get this. And we're going to, I'm telling you, this is awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. And it will bring, by the grace of God, I hope you remember this, because your season's coming at some point. And you're going to have great victories in this life. We're going to have abundance of joy. And in fact, Jesus comes and He brings this, like this abundant joy, abundant life. It's amazing. But in this abundant life, um, you will have much sorrow. It will come. And you'll be in these moments just like the people in the Scriptures. Look at verse 1 through 5. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amnimadad, Amnimadad the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salon. Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Now, wait a second. Now, Ruth the Moabite, we see, is David's grandmother. Now, how astounding is this? The purposes of God, the tapestry that we begin to see put together and unfolded and the, the, the thread that begins to weave history together. No Lot and his daughters, no King David. Because there's no Boabites and there's no Ruth. Isn't that fascinating? And how grateful and thankful we are for King David. Down through the centuries, the people of God have found great comfort and care from reading the Psalms and the prayers of David. 
And in moments of difficulty and sorrow, you can turn and flip open and, and read a psalm and say, you know what, David's been there and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered. The Lord rescued. We see David crying out, questioning his soul. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. And we've said to ourselves, why am I downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. Aren't we thankful for King David? We think about great losses or great tragedy or even great sin, and we think about the people of the Bible, and we go to King David, and we're comforted by the fact that David in some ways was a major screw-up too. Aren't you thankful for King David? Doesn't it give hope to chumps like us? We really aren't as bad as David, unless you have some undisclosed murders in your background. And we look at that and we say, God, thank you for using a broken man. He has an affair with a man's wife and then, man's wife, and then sends the husband off to war to get him killed so he can have her. And doesn't even see how wrong it is until God sends the prophet Nathan. Have you ever been so lost in sin that you didn't even see it? Other people could see it, but you had so self-justified. And you were so muddy in it that you thought you were clean. And aren't you thankful for an example like that? And aren't you hopeful that somebody would bring a king uh, to uh, bring somebody like Nathan and say, like, you're the man. You're the man to open your eyes. Aren't we thankful for King David? I am. And if there is no Moabites, there's no Ruth. There's no land, there's no famine, there's no Elimelech that goes into this land with his wife Naomi. And fortunately, by the grace of God, we have King David. And King David is great, but oh, 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 there is so much more. The saga goes from being saga, S-A-G-A, lowercase, to S-A-G-A, uppercase, with infinite amounts of exclamation points. The saga continues. Verse 6 through 16, and bear with me because some of these names I cannot pronounce. Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, 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 whatever. The father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. And Jerome the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jatham, and Jatham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon. Wait a second, let's pause. Can the purposes of God work through all these generations, keeping them alive, even through deportation to Babylon? I think so. Did each person, each name that represents a person, has seasons in every one of their lives where they escaped death by a hair? Where they were sick to the point of death? Their mom and dad didn't think they were going to make it because that, that pneumonia was so bad and oh my goodness, that baby survived and grew up? Near death? experiences where you almost step off a cliff. Every one of these lives, we think, oh, that was just a chaotic, just, or that was just an accidental slip. And, and No, 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 no. God's provision to preserve, to preserve this bloodline. 
to reserve, preserve his purposes. Oh no. That near-death experience and that life that God say that was for a reason. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Sheraltiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, there's a bunch of unta- you know, untaken names here, folks, for, the, for your kids in the future. <laughs> Zerubbabel. We ever have another kid, Zerubbabel Sparks. <laughs> Zerubbabel, sorry. The father of Abadu. And Abadu, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan, Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is the Christ. All the way to Jesus. We find that name Ruth, the Moabite. Where is Jesus in this, I ask? How could any good come from this? And behold, the God whose purposes cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. You get that, right? Whose purposes cannot be stopped. His purposes work work through incestuous pregnancies, through godly families and godless families, through tragedies, through loss, through victory, through politics, through anarchy, through tyrants, through godly leaders, through apparent chaos. It isn't chaos. Through milliseconds, through one generation to the next, from thousandth generation to thousandth generation, through the sun coming up and the sun going down, through natural disasters, exoduses, refugees, through espionage, through frontline warfare, through inches, through miles, through foreign countries, through nationalistic nationalism, through prostitutes, through kings, through poverty, through riches, through wartime, through peace, through sorrow, through pain, through laughter, through joy, through slander, through lying, through giving honor, through telling the truth, through homemakers' chores, through the rearing of children, through every age in between, through motherhood and fatherhood, through infants and children, to the elderly, through death and old age, through death and young age, through small, often overlooked things, through the smallest decision, and to the big ones too, through your next ten years, and even to your tomorrow, God's purposes will stand. Where is Jesus in this? Where is God, what are you doing? I think we see it pretty clear now. Through the chaotic mess of Jesus, or excuse me, of Genesis 19. Through the story of Lot and his daughters. That we so often shy away from and we think, boy, I hope a skeptic doesn't read that. That's weird. We see that tiny little name hidden, hidden in plain sight. Moab. 
Moab, to the Moabites, to Ruth, as the generations continue, to King David, as the generations continue, to Jesus. Now this is going to break down because Jesus can't not exist. But if Lot, if chapter 19, if Lot and his daughters doesn't happen, no Moabites, no Ruth, no King David, no, that's why metaphors and their examples and illustrations break down, no Jesus. Do you see the purposes of God in the midst of apparent confusion and chaos? He's at work. And do you realize this scene, they didn't get to see this unfold. Nor will you get to see all the purposes of God in your life unfold. And you will die with unanswered questions. And not every bow to your tears will be tied. Not every eye to your pain will be dotted. Not every T will be crossed. You will not get all the clarity that you want in this lifetime. But you can trust Him. You can know from passages like this. When you are in your September the 15th, the 12th moment. By the way, September the 15th, God changed everything for us. It was the day that Andy and I talked. It was the day that God birthed this, this, into our heart. And He answered our cry. He answered my cry. And you may say, that's not death. That's not significant pain. I felt pain. And you in your life have felt pain. And I want you to know, when you're asking those questions, where's Jesus in this? What good could come out of this? I want you to remember the Moabites. God is at work. And I might not, have, I, I might not know all the reasons and the, or the ways that He is at work. But I want you to lay down the demand of figuring all of that out and embrace the mystery of saying, it's okay for me just to know that He's working. It's okay for me just to know that he's not sitting on his hands idly by saying, figure it out yourself. But he's got you in the palm of his hand. Isn't that good news? That he's working? That it's not purposeless? Oh, the intellectual tyranny of imagining that your suffering is purposeless. Or that it was only the work of the enemy. The chaos that would ensue from a mind that embraced such things. God is at work, and you can trust Him. Where is Jesus? What good could come out of this? I think we have our answer. Andy, team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us, and I thank You that, uh, that You are at work. And uh, there's a pastor who said that we may be, I think it was Piper who said that at any given second, God is doing a billion things in your life and we may be aware of one of them. And at the same time, God, you're doing a billion things in my life right now. You're doing a billion things in each other's lives. And individually, we we might not even be aware of any of them. So God, I just ask that you would work. Holy Spirit, I know that you, you always have unique ways of ministering to us as individuals for the sake of the body. And so I just ask that you would do that right now.
that we would be able to respond. And maybe some people are in that season of crying out. Maybe they're not. God, I thank you for the, uh, the pr- prophetic push that you, the nudge that you gave to Kurt at 3.15 in the morning the other day. And the fact that he told that to me. And the fact that I got to preach that this morning. I just thank you for that. For those who are, I mean, like myself right now, who are skipping through life and just enjoying and just happy. Enjoying life. Thank you, God. Help me be prepared for those, those out there. I don't need to be scared, but I do want to be prepared. And God, I'm anticipating that in those seasons that, that any of us go, go into, that, that you'll remind us of things like this. Okay, God's working. And sometimes those Christian cliches can actually be the most profound truth that we need to hear. Hey, you know what? Throw your arm around that shoulder and say, you know what? God's working. I have no idea how, but He's working. And it's going to be okay. So Holy Spirit, just work. I just trust that you're going to. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, I encourage you to pray. Pray for each other. You know, if the Holy Spirit nudges you to, hey, go pray for somebody, we'll go pray for them. If you need prayer, we'll come talk to somebody. We're a family, so get some prayer. And uh, the Holy Spirit will lead. And I trust that he will. Let's, uh, let's sing.